Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. Always nice to talk to you guys. <laughs> Always a pleasure. <laughs> how many, how long have we been doing, how many uh, pandemic episodes have we done now? I don't know. It's all one long pandemic episode now, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who's on the show this week? Uh, this week, it was nice to talk to our old friends, Ann Friedman and Aminatu So. They have a new book out. It's called Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. Uh, you may know them as the hosts of Call Your Girlfriend, the podcast. Anne is a journalist, has written for many, many magazines. She's been on the show before. Amina is a person of the media. I feel like she plays many, many different roles, uh, but they have written this book about um, adult friendship, specifically uh, their adult friendship. It's like a memoir of a friendship, and uh, it's uh, it's lovely. Is this something like we should uh, we should be reading therapeutically, the three of us, to uh, talk our way through our uh, quote unquote well, adult friendship? You guys will be surprised to hear that uh, I did express some of my own feelings about my own adult friendships. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and uh, in a shocking turn of events, I um, asked them about feelings and then projected my own onto them. And uh, and they responded by saying, you you clearly need to work on your adult friendships. Was, was I look forward to listening to this episode <laughs> and uh, catching those moments. We're brought to you, as always, by the good people at MailChimp. Oh, hey, uh, aren't Ann and Amina um, curating this year's uh, uh, MailChimp by the Books Festival? In fact, they are, Aaron. By the Books is a digital virtual reading festival. It's happening all on MailChimp.com slash presents. And we have done a little uh, spinoff podcast. It's called The Books That Changed Us. And we're talking to all these incredible authors, including a bunch of people who have been on the long form podcast before about the sort of defining books of their lives. You can subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to this, or you can find it all at MailChimp.com slash presents. Thanks to MailChimp for always supporting the show and great new projects like by the books. Now here's Max with Ann Friedman and Aminatu So. Hi, Anne. Hi, Amina. Hi, Max. Hey, Max. 
<laughs> and you sound was so that perfect excited. unison hi <laughs> mac you guys both sound like people who have been doing a lot of interviews yeah I mean, maybe that's true i think that the more accurate thing is that um We've been doing some interviews, but I think that, you know, it's like we are also like recording our entire podcast. We are also um, experiencing the pandemic like everyone else. So the, the dread and grief is just ambient everywhere. We always say that we are in this ongoing conversation, but it's like, no, right now, it actually is an ongoing conversation. <laughs> like all day long, we are talking to each other. So maybe that's why we don't have that, um, you know, first time we're seeing each other today energy. <laughs> are you guys like, uh, where where are you on the like uh, spectrum of closeness in the history of your relationship? Where are you guys right now? Oh, that's a really good question. Um well, speaking only for myself, I will say, like, extremely close, extremely good, like, feeling very, uh, I feel, like, very safe and secure in this partnership in a really, like, mature and healthy way. So I love it. I also feel very held and supported in in this friendship and in this partnership and really feel really feel like I can fully express what is happening for me minute to minute, which like right now, given the circumstances of both of our lives um, together and separately, feels really, really good. How are your um, uh, how are your egos is the thing that I was wondering. You've written a book together. You guys host a <laughs> podcast together. We are talking uh, six days before your book is going to come out. This thing that you have been working on for some time. When did you guys start writing the book? 2017? Yeah, I think we started the proposal, right, in yeah. 2017. So the process, we're at, like, year three. Right. And, like, starting next week, to the extent that it has already been, like, Anne and Amina is, like, uh, one word. Or Amina and Anne, I don't know what the order is. Like, is one word, that phrase is one word. It's going to be, like, even more of that next week. And I wonder just, um, how, how, how are your egos? Is it, like, weird to be that tied to each other or is that like the beauty of the whole thing and I should shut up it's not weird to be that tied together I guess maybe um the Anne and Amina the you know the ampersand joining of our name has always been there so in some ways like it doesn't feel intense or new you know I think that I I was telling Anne this actually earlier today is that I suffer from this condition of um I just have low expectations of everything and so in some ways, I was like, sure, this book comes out in six weeks. But, um, you know, like we are working on a lot of other things. Um, you know, a book is great. I always joke to Anne that like, sure, like a book is great, but it's kind of just a long blog post. So it's, uh, you know, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> there. I don't have this like kind of romantic notion of, oh, this thing that you've been working on for so long is here. And so there has to be like an explosion of you know, like celebration or talking about or whatever. But I'm also not naive to know that that is not how the like publishing machine works. So I understand that there is a launch day and that there are launch things that you have to do. But I think that in terms of my interior life, I feel very good about, okay, like next week will be, it will not be a weird week because every week has been weird for the past couple of, you know, like months and we've been working so hard. I, I'm wondering about your question just in terms of when you say ego, you mean like our individual egos within like, how am I feeling about like myself as a human who makes things in the world, who's on the cusp of introducing this, taking up my collaboration to the next level? Is that what you mean by like, how is my ego? I mean, I, I think like I'm more just meant like uh, sometimes 
when you're in a, a partnership as like deep as yours and you are on the brink of uh, releasing finally your long blog post into the world. Uh, there can I hate be some that like so much. <laughs> I know. I, yeah. I say it. I say it to troll you because I see how you're like you have the full like baby Velociraptor like hands and everything comes out. So it truly is my it's my deepest joy to troll you this way. I think what I was just asking is like, how are you guys doing with each other, and is that part of it tense, or have you guys figured that out? Because I think for lots of people in your situation, this would be. A tricky moment and there'd be like questions about who's doing what publicity all that kind of stuff you know like it can be fraught and I guess I'm wondering whether it has been for you and if it hasn't why it's interesting because I I found myself being more grateful than ever for the fact that we wrote this book as one narrative and not dueling chapters from each of our perspective because I really know that like it has to be taken as a complete product of this collaboration, right? Like no one can be like, oh, I love that part, but I hated that part. Or I'm a fan of what one of you did. It's totally impossible even for us to separate like who is air quotes responsible for what part, what's good or what's bad or what succeeded or what failed about this book. And like, I feel great about that. Like that is something that feels really healthy to me in a way where like, even if we did feel some level of competition, which I really don't think we do at this point, you know, in our collaboration, um, it would be kind of impossible. Can we talk a little bit about how you actually like decided to write the thing and do it that way? And like, I feel like the default move in these situations is you trade off chapters. That's what like the co-authored book normally is, I think. So what was that process like for you guys? How did you actually tangibly do it? You live on different coasts. Like, how did it work? You know, I think that um, the experience of writing the book proposal for us was the blueprint for how this whole thing was going to work. Did an agent come to you or did you guys decide you wanted to write a book? We had both had agents already for, um, you know, for some periods of time. Like, I want to say Anne had had an agent for way longer than I had. Long-suffering Gail had been my agent for, like, almost a decade, and wow. I'd never given her a thing to sell. I know. I know. And, um, yeah, and Jay had been my agent for, like, a little under a year. But, you know, and obviously, like, we're always in conversations with them about what we want to do and, you know, whatever. And the idea for the book, I think, just it happened very organically for us. And we realized that if we wanted to, before we even engage our agents in it, if we wanted to write a book together, we had to figure out how to write this book proposal together, you know, and what were the logistics of that. And so I think that the minute that I understood that, oh, it would mean that we would have to be in the same place to do this, a lot of things just kind of set in place for that. And I still remember when I emailed Jay to tell him that, oh, I was like, I finally do have a book idea, but it's not a book I want to write alone. It's a book I want to write with my friend. Here is her agent. And he wrote back immediately saying, oh, I know her. And there was this like very good, there was a very good feeling of, okay, great. Like the adults know each other so the kids can play together. This (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my my grown up knows you're grown up, and uh, they were super open to it because yeah, because I really do not know how publishing works. So I you know I'm like I don't know how this works. We have two agents. Like how is the thing? But um, it turns out that when you just ask for what you want, sometimes like people respond. 
And and I believe you were already coming to New York for something like I forget, like maybe probably podcast work or whatever. Or like, I don't know if it was like explicitly to come start this book proposal that you were in town. And we decided to take a crack at it. And it was, uh, you know. It was really hard because we had never written together that way. But it involved a lot of what essentially became our process, which was a lot of conversation, a lot of outlining, a lot of just debating what the ideas were and what the thing was for hours and hours and hours before we even sat down to write anything. It's funny because I don't remember the conversation, but I do remember very much how I felt about the even the option of potentially writing separate sections in first person as opposed to writing it in like a first person plural the way we did. And I remember thinking about how we had really done all this work in our friendship and in our relationship to come to some mutual understanding about things that had been hard. And it was hard for me to envision a world in which we went down this dueling chapters route without it feeling like, okay, now I have to defend exactly how I felt in this moment and why I did what I did and and where I was really coming from. And then you make your strongest case. And then, you know, the reader decides who's right. Like, for some reason, it like, I had a really hard time from the start envisioning a book that was the two of us writing from our separate perspectives the whole time and it not feeling like asking the reader to choose. And it felt both safer and also like, you know, more interesting and ambitious to say like, what if we didn't ask people to ping pong back and forth? Like, what if we just let the reader be in one narrative and in one train of thought? Yeah. And I I remember like early on a conversation about how that would work and I completely agree with you. I was like, oh, I'm not interested in a she said, she said, essentially, of how this is working. But I think, too, that, you know, when we were trying to identify, like, what is the book that we wish we could have read when we were going through kind of like our hard shit? The thing that we kept coming back to over and over again is we were like, we want a narrative of two people inside the same relationship. And I think that once that was set for me, there was just no turning back. So how do you actually like um write a paragraph together? How does it how does it work? Oh my god. Tell I'm him so the excited. Madness. I'm... Tell him the madness. <laughs> so there is an intense outlining process or was, right? Where we would sit down and be like, okay, what we got to write today is the beginning of chapter 4 or the second part of chapter whatever and we would discuss in detail what are the points we want to hit what are the things we kind of want to get at when you guys are having those conversations and they're about like moments in your friendship in which you did experience differently like before we even get to the writing like what are those conversations like well we often backed into it like through talking about the topic we wanted to hit Mm -hmm. like so we'd be like okay like this is a thing we like we want to talk about moments where we've had to accommodate each other or like stretch to accommodate each other in friendship and like what are the moments where that was true for us and then kind of back into this is the example that comes to mind for each of us and if it was two different examples how to work with that if it was the same example how to work with that and it's also true that not everything came out in the conversation and outlining times like you know in those periods like often we would sort of hit a wall with that and say okay we're going to take what we have now separately go right to this part of the outline, either for a set period of time or till we hit a set word count, 
come back together, read what we had each written separately, and then like start it all over again. Like figure out where the holes still are, figure out where we have overlap, figure out where we are like not remembering it the same way at all, figure out who made that point a lot better and take that version and then kind of go back again to the outline or put it together from there. So it, it some of it was conversation, but some of it was like, oh, we have to separately um, split up and reflect. Like it would say something like example here, you know, and we'd have to separate and say, okay, what's the example I can think of of a time when I felt this way? Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L. V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. then let's talk about the writing for a second. So like when you got back together and you'd each written your own versions of it, like how does that work? How do you write a paragraph together? So we would read the paragraph to each other out loud, like read each other's work, do the thing that Anne said. And then, you know, it was the, and I really wish that you can, um, the, Anne has an idea to do Twitch, but for editing, <laughs> oh, <laughs> where you just get to dream. see, somebody invest. <laughs> you get to see in a Google Doc the madness of um, of the, the process of these two people. Yeah. And, you know, so it's like, so we each have our separate Word documents and then we would port everything over to like one document and start separating out and being like, okay, these paragraphs go together, roughly like to the outline. Here are each sections that we've written. Sometimes we would like separate them out by color. Um, so we knew like, this is a thing I wrote. This is a thing Anne wrote and look at them. And that part of the process was interesting because it was something that we, we started doing separately, like very early on where one of us had to take a first pass and then someone else would come in. And there was just like this really built in trust of, okay, I trust you to take the first pass at knitting this together. 
what's staying, what's leaving. The knit together. The knit together, baby. (laughs) The knit together. And it was, you know, like, and I think that that is the place where honestly, if we, the most like dangerous part of that process was actually right there because it was like, well, why are you choosing to keep this? Why are you removing this? Why are you, you know, like, why are you making the decisions that you were making unilaterally, essentially? And that part of the process for me went actually well. And sometimes like Anne took the lead. Sometimes I took the lead. We would leave each other comments about why we had made certain decisions or not, or leave holes in for the other person to fill out. And that document that we would put everything in like became its own, you know, it was like, this is the weird breathing living chapter here. And it's not done until we have both signed off on it. Also, Amina is an amazing editor. Like, what is being an editor but having, like, an incredible sense for, like, what is the right detail and what is the right moment and when do you still need more? When is it feeling anemic? And, like, we were joint editors of the whole thing and also editing each other and also editing ourselves. I mean, like, this process is is one that I, I agree with you. Like, this point in the process required a lot of trust. But also, everything was always backed up. You know, we always had, like, a trash draft of with my name on it and a trash draft with Amina's name on it. And, like, if we were like, oh, man, I think I cut the, the perfect example for this that was back in your version, like, we could find it. The Google Docs related to this project, which, again, I'm sure is true of most books, but, wow, like, the Google Doc universe is sprawling, truly sprawling. Yeah, it is very helpful that we are both, like, um, you know, we just like love a process and we love many documents. Otherwise, this is a this is painful. <laughs> and a paper trail. Love a paper trail. Love receipts. I mean, not to be like too corny, but uh, you guys also like very obviously love each other. This is all just feels so like healthy. <laughs> it's real, Max. We, it's real. You mean it's not a lie, Max? Like we actually like respect and enjoy working with each other? <laughs> yes. Uh, it does sound like inspiringly... And like potentially out of reach healthy the way that you guys talk about it. And I wonder whether you feel like you could have done the book without having done like friends therapy. No, there is no, (laughs) the the book is literally born because, well, the reason that we went to therapy is because over the years, like people had always approached us about doing like book projects about, you know, Shine Theory or the podcast or whatever, things that we were never interested in. Like we have been pitched books so many times before in the past. And I'm not interested in reading a book about the women who make uh, the Call Your Girlfriend podcast. Um, great podcast. Don't want to read the book. And um, and it's... Oh, you like the podcast. I love the podcast. <laughs> it sounds great. That lady, Tina Delvac, does an amazing job with those two hosts Yummiest who voice just meander all the time. Um, yep. But yeah, you know, there's like... You know what I'm saying? There's just like that kind of book where some like, you know, baby editor somewhere at a publisher is like, oh, I like do seven of my friends listen to this podcast. We should like get them to write a book. And you're like, what's the there there? There's no there there. And same thing with Shine Theory. And part of our breakdown was that we were missing each other in in our friendship in a big way. And we had to make a joint decision that was Shine Theory related. And that was the real linchpin moment. It was like, well, you know, like, I like one of us said, actually, 
I'm not happy in this relationship. This is not working for me. And it's very telling that for us it was about work. Of course, it, it was going to be about work. The place that we are most, uh, we feel strongest about our identities. But, um, you know, and so that was the conversation that drove us to therapy was, oh, actually, even when our friendship has been bad, we have actually been very good at working with each other, which is has always been kind of a mind fuck for me, where it's like, well, I'm like, we're showing up every day. The thing is good. No one is angry at each other. There's no tension. There's no whatever with work. But why does the friendship feel strained? And so the minute that we couldn't make this joint decision together about work, I think we both really understood that it was, you know, it was like the we have really hit rock bottom and it's something that's worth talking about. And so that is the conversation that drove us to therapy. And I think for me, it was less about a joint decision and more about the understanding that any other project would be a deepening of our collaboration. And that felt untenable if the friendship was in such a bad place. It was it was more about like, like, oh, yeah, like we're getting by OK work wise, like everything is hanging together, like we're professional people who can, you know, like stuff all of our feelings down dramatically and show up and do work. But the idea of doing more work together or like doing something as intense as writing a book together, it was just like so clear that we were not equipped. What was off? Mostly like our communication. We were just a lot of like very small things that I think mostly all very small petty things, like petty seeming things had just added up. Like, there was no big dramatic, like, someone did, like, some really shitty thing or someone, like, really misbehave and it's easy to point fingers at, which I think is why it took so long to unravel the way that it did. But we, like, at various points in our friendship, we were just not happy about being in that friendship and we're not talking to each other about it. And I think that, for me, that was the overwhelming... um, I just, I felt really lonely in a relationship that I had never felt lonely in before. And I felt not seen and not heard. And also that I I didn't recognize who my partner was because we were not talking. So everything from the level of, oh, I don't know what to get her for a birthday this year because I don't know what she needs to, oh yeah, we haven't had like a real catch up about what's going on, you know, like the, the kind of like bigger points of our lives. And I think that that is a very recognizable kind of, relationship strife where, you know, there's no big deal, but over time you stop talking to each other and it becomes untenable. Or yeah, like over time, the number of things that feel difficult to talk about or impossible to talk about piles up higher than the number of things that like feel safe and comfortable to talk about. And at a certain point, I think we realized that most of the things in our lives that were like real, you know, like the big like joys and sorrows and difficulties had like made their way to the other side of this line where like we felt like we couldn't talk about them or we didn't feel like we had the trust to talk about them. And everything that was left was like work and superficial things like on the other side um, where we were still talking about it. And it 100 percent took like an emotions professional to sit us down and be like, this is the sort of like emotional cycle that you are trapped in and why, even though you both want to be very close to each other and you both desperately want to talk about the big stuff that you've kind of, the stuff that you've decided you can't talk about is so hard to talk about because you haven't fixed this, this trust thing between the two of you. Um, And here is why it's cyclical. And so the, dramatic intervention of going to a therapist was like part of the 
not part of, I would say, like, maybe the first meaningful step in both of us being able to say, like, okay, like, we're both going to do this super weird thing together. Like, we're both willing to spend significant money and time and really investigate what's going on here. And it was even that act, that declaration was important because I think we had both been doubting whether the other person really wanted to get back all of the kind of real and difficult stuff of our friendship or whether we were both happy to just kind of sit in the work and superficial side of things. Yeah, my journal from this time is hilarious. It's just like, oh, yeah, we're going to try to get a therapist together. And so there's the one half that's like, the feelings feel bad, but the logistics are just beautiful and amazing. You know, it's like, okay, great. Like, <laughs> Well-oiled machine right, I'm like, on the, I can't on the talk, logistics front. I can't talk to this person about anything, but I can 100% interview and hire a therapist with her, which is, you know, which in itself was so telling. It was knowing that we were both really uncomfortable and I think like very cathartic in the sense that you we were watching each other doing things that we knew we were uncomfortable by. And it meant that there was still something there. It was like, great. Like I'm not happy, but Anna's certainly not happy either. So (laughs) we are both sweating and and unhappy. Like, yeah. (laughs) Are you guys like this with all your friends? I want to say that I'm like this with all of my like very significant friends. Yes. I, in this relationship, I have learned a lot about how I am in other relationships and there's not like um there's not like a one to one comparison in all of them because that's the thing that's beautiful about friendship is that uh the boundaries are always different and the people are always different and the you know like the thing is different but I think that that act of okay something is hard and it doesn't mean that it's the end of our friendship and we are just going to talk about it and it's a moment of discomfort um, that's not something that I have historically been good at, but it is something that I am finding myself doing more and more and finding that um, people are very generous when you do that. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard question for me to answer because I don't have I don't have other friendships like this one, which is to say it is it is also a working partnership, like it is a collaboration. And also, like, you know, I think, that is part of what created the opening for things to get better in our friendship because we had this like contrast with our working lives. And but it also is part of the reason why things got so bad is because it allowed us to kind of pretend that things were OK because work was chugging along just fine. And so right. I've never had a friend who I am as close to as I am to Amina. I've never had a friendship break down in quite the same way. And I've never had to repair it in quite the same way. But also, like, there are all these other extenuating circumstances to our friendship. And so it's hard for me to answer. But I will say that, like, I have had periods where I am less close to someone who I would consider, like, core to me, a big friendship, like, fundamental to my life, and have had to kind of address it with that friend and work back to it. But just not on the same scale and not in the same, I don't know, the circumstances are just so different. I don't know if this has been your experience over the last couple of months, but it feels to me like lots of conversations, both big systemic conversations and also really narrow interpersonal conversations are happening that wouldn't have happened before. And I think that, things that maybe would have gone unspoken before or people would have been able to not let go but push down 
you know, and sort of just kind of like wait to get to the other side of their saying. That's why I was wondering is like whether you guys are, are in the, uh, in camp, like say the thing all the time or not, you know? It's funny because I can't separate this moment of pandemic from this moment when my other friends have started to read this book that the two of us wrote together, which has really like opened up so many great conversations in my life. You know, like my closest friends who many of whom had read little snippets, but like, you know, most of whom had not read the whole book. That has been the way our conversations have begun, you know, talking about like, what did you see in the book or what, you know, if we were to do something like this for our friendship, what are the moments, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And so it's hard for me to separate. I know we have this very weird and singular perspective in this pandemic because it coincides with this thing we've been working on for three years. But that's my honest truth. Yeah, you know, Anne, that thing that you're saying about having our close friends read it is I like I'm feeling the same way of wow, if you could do this exercise with, you know, all the people that you're closest to in life, I guess your life would be richer and more amazing. But um, there are only 24 Beyonce hours in the day. So that is, it's, it is not possible that I will be able to to do this with everyone well, in that, my life. <laughs> I mean, that was part of the experience I had reading the book. And also part of the experience I've had, like, listening to your show and just knowing the two of you is it's like, uh, but particularly reading the book was like, uh, I, I would like, I should be the, this is a much better way to be with your friends than the way that I am with my friends. <laughs> this is like unequivocally better. And also like, I don't, uh, I don't know why I don't, but I, ha- I don't very often. Maybe it's better, but it like, it does come at a cost, you know, and it comes with, so much work and and I think that part of why I was drawn to to doing this project at all was that I I really feel a need to be really transparent about a lot of things in my life and I think that the friendship that Anne and I have because you know because of the podcast because of whatever the how the internet works and how people are there was always this you know like just belief that we were you know, it's like, yeah, you guys are great friends. And it's true. We are great friends. But I think that it it just started becoming like really untenable for me personally of just this this belief that people have that two people just choose to be friends and it's and it's super easy. I was like, no, that is so infantilizing. Deep friendship is a lot of work. It's a rewarding work, but it is a lot of work. Yeah, I, I, I think honestly, like you can condense every question I've asked you guys basically to that idea, which is the the kind of like revelation of reading that book for me was thinking of friendships and particularly like adult friendships as work. And I, I don't think I totally had that thought clearly before, you know, <laughs> like I think in my head it was like my, particularly like my core people were supposed to be easy, you know, I supposed to, it was supposed to go easy. But I also just want to say that I don't think that it means that, friendship feels like this difficult slog day in and day out every single year. Like, I think that like, you know, like a lot of relationships, like I experience my close friendships as requiring work and at some points and like some more work than others. And then at other times it does feel set it and forget it. You know, like, I I guess it's like, it's not as easy as just saying like, it's work all the time or it's never work. Like the truth is somewhere in between as it is with all complicated adult relationships. Yeah. But I think it is a realm in which 
people think about it a lot less than you guys are thinking about it. Does that, I mean, does that sound Yeah, that's why you? you wrote a book, Max. That's, yeah, literally. that's what I'm saying. I feel like <laughs> yeah, a lot of people are good gonna, plug, good plug. I'm just, I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to express the experience I had reading your book, which is that you guys have thought about it a lot, and uh, you taught me some things about adult friendship. That's what I'm driving at here. Oh, uh, thank Amazing. you, Max. That, that makes me really happy to hear you say that. I think, you know, there's just like, in the culture, there's just an expectation that you know, it's like your romantic relationships, your parental relationships, your like family stuff, all of that is, we have all of this shorthand for saying like, yes, I love these people, but you know, like it's hard and it's work. And also you have to prioritize them. And that is just not true for friendship. I was very much socialized to believe that, um, you know, it's just like easy breezy. And if it gets hard, you can run away because just get a new friend. No big deal. Right. right? Just get a new friend. But I think that it, Friendship is really at the center of that because we are people who decided a long time ago that our friends are our family. If you're going to say that your friends are your chosen family, the key word there is family. Family is hard and work. So, you know, the the snake is eating its own tail all of the time. And you might as well, you might as well put in the work. Um Here's the thing I would like to ask you guys about a little bit, because uh, I know that you are believers in um, transparency of all kinds both emotional and otherwise. And you've done these two episodes of Call Your Girlfriend that I loved that were about the like nuts and bolts of how you run that business. And if anyone has not listened to them, I strongly recommend you go listen to them. Uh, They are deeply informative and very, very transparent. And I was wondering if we could quickly try and do the same for the book. Would you guys be game for that? We're so game. I have no, I literally no idea what you guys would get as an advance for this book. Oh my God, guess. We're giving you two guesses. I'd say the over-under is, God, I really don't know, 150 grand? What? (laughs) 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 Sorry, I thought you were giving two numbers. Um, No, that's like where I'd say it's like, uh, that's the line. Wow, I'm so happy you don't work in publishing, Max. Um, (laughs) It's true. um, (laughs) we, We got paid for our book Five hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. Is that true? Hell yes, that's great, right? Anne? Yes, I would. Oh god, I, I feel like I now I should have looked up the exact number. Yeah, I but can look it up, but I think of, that was it, right? Right. So half, like, which to split between us, to be clear, like not like each, but like that's yeah. the total amount for the book before our agents cuts and all of that. Like, yeah, fifteen percent to the agents, thirty percent to Trump. And then, you know, everything else. And then 50% each. Yeah. <laughs> where, did, where did that map for you guys on what you expected? You know, the whole thing was like fake monopoly money, if I'm honest. So I, the only thing that I knew was what other friends or other authors had made in advances in that same season. And so for me, I was very much like, okay, the ceiling is probably 800K and the floor is 150. And the whole thing is very nebulous. And I truly didn't know. It's like wherever we netted out in the end would have been where we netted out. I did not have any like romantic notion of if someone pays us less than this, you know, it, it's not going to happen. I think that the way that Anne and I usually approach our joint finances is how much money will it take for us to do the thing that we want to make? And in this case, we knew that it meant that we would have to step away from pretty much like all of the other income that we had, except for the podcast. And we try to do some, you know, back of the envelope math of 
what is the hole that we are trying to fill? And also with a real understanding of, you know, if we get enough money that we could take like a whole year to write this book, then that's what we'll do. And if we do not get enough money that it's a whole year to write this book, then we will write the book in the exact amount of time that we have money for. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, book advances are like very fake and shady and make no sense. And um, it's always interesting to find out like, you know, what other people have made and how like that works out. But 575, like you guys were psyched. I would not say psyched. I like, okay. Honestly, like I just, I didn't understand like what it represented. And I think that there's also a way in which just book advances are talked about and whispered about where, you know, it's, it's very much like a, because all it is is a bet that a publisher is taking on your book, right? In the casino of publishing. In the casino yeah. of right. publishing, which let me tell you, when Anne and I were in our publishing meetings, we were playing our own version of Moneyball and rearranging, like, wanted to give everyone different jobs and, you know, like, just reshuffle the whole deck. And uh, the calculus that book people make makes no sense. And I say that as someone who, like, deals with venture capital. This makes absolutely no sense. But they're... They're taking the bets, people are getting the money, and the money gets talked about, and it is not a fair system at all. Do you guys expect to make money on the book beyond the advance? I mean, it's a complicated question because I expect that the effort that we've put into this book, and then also the significant investment by our publisher means that they are compelled at some level to market it, right? Like, you know, as opposed to, like, even though it is a casino, they have a real interest in getting people to read and talk about it. I see there being, like, the financial benefit being, like, all the other things that we go on to do jointly and separately, right? Like rather than like literally I'm receiving royalty checks, I think about it more like I will get additional opportunities and I will get paid like higher dollar amounts and we will both get very cool opportunities together. Like I think about it more in that sense than I Mm -hmm. do about like literally will I get a check that says it's for big friendship. Yeah, I mean, and I did a little bit of research on this, on royalties, because I fully don't understand it in the casino, right? It's like, oh, wait, like you're like the book costs how much, but then you give me royalties on how much? And I was really curious about if most books do not earn out their advances, how is the machine still working? And like one or two hits a year, baby. Like that's yeah, how. one or two hits a year. But some years there are no hits. You know, I'm like some people be late on those trilogies. So it's like, <laughs> not coming. And and so much of it is really nebulous where there is this marketplace in which they sell all these foreign rights and they sell rights for, you know, like whatever and whatever and whatever. So do publishers make their money back? Sure, in some way. Do they um, put a different kind of pressure on authors to get the initial spend on them? I think that those two things are very separate. Is a publisher, like, can they be made whole versus are you paying back your advance to them? And my sense of the, like, you know, the monopoly money that we've gotten is that unless everyone in America reads a book, which, as we know, nobody reads, we're not going to earn out that advance. I mean, maybe we will, but most books do not earn out their advance. So I, I'm not under the impression that, um, you know, like the two of us will figure out something that 90% of authors have not figured out. Um, but I agree with you, Anne, about the additional opportunities and the, and everything else that will accrue to us from writing this book. I also think that like in the calculus of the book advance, you know, sure, like we, that money was money that we split and we like pay out our agents, we pay for taxes, but we also made a significant investment in writing this book where we, um, you know, 
We have a book expense doc that's somewhere that one of us should probably pull up to tell you how much money in we Google have Docs. spent in a Google I'll Doc. How much yeah, we have yeah, spent up, writing this up. book. Part of the therapy bill was footed by this book. We hired our own um, fact checker and editor, um, some travel. Do you want me to just read some line items from the book Wait, expenses? You guys, you guys had your own editor, like on the side? Oh my God. Uh, queen Max. of the book world, Carrie Fry. Hello. She's our woman. She's edited some of the like best books like you read this year. So just go to any acknowledgments page and uh, check out Carrie Fry. No one has ever said anything different to me about Carrie Fry. It's the exact same review every single time. How much time do you have for me to talk about all of the things I have learned from her? Can you do it in a, in a short way? Because I think it's actually like a totally mysterious thing to people that there are like secondary ghost editors that are not your editor at the publisher. I think it's pretty opaque to people how that works. It's very opaque. We had had friends who had written books who had told us that they had had editors. And I truly like didn't understand if it, you know, like, why would you want to hire them? How does it work? Do you tell your publishing editors about it? Like, I just didn't know. And then very early in the process of writing our book and in turning in a couple of edits to our publisher, we decided that we needed someone who would be hands-on with us in this book in a very everyday kind of way. You know, and also the, the editing process for uh, if you're someone who's like written for the internet or written for a magazine or whatever, you will be very surprised at how uh, book editing is very, 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 very different. And we we wanted someone to be inside of the book with us. And Carrie came highly recommended by many, many, many people. And you know, from the first conversation that we had with her, she's it was something that she was used to, and she essentially like held our hand through this process because all of the questions that we had about how does this work were questions that she could answer because she had done it so many times before. And also questions that she could really answer on a level of craft and on a level of like her lone job was to help us make the book we wanted to make, like write the book we wanted to write. And I think that is something that no editor who works at a publishing house is able to do because of the aforementioned casino vibes. It's just different. And having her be only an advocate for the work is a part of this too. I mean, I'll leave you a separate voice memo or something about all the brilliant things that I've learned from Carrie because we don't have time, but I would would be pleased to do that for some future episode in which she talks about all that stuff directly. You should really do it and we'll like put it at the end of the show in the credits. I will. I can't wait. I'm like, I'm sweating with anticipation. Did you tell the editor at your publishing house that you had somebody else? I mean, I told my agent, I don't remember that we told our editors at the publishing house, but I, I mean, they know that Carrie is acknowledged in the book and obviously like our agents know, but I do not remember having a conversation with them about someone else's editing this book. But I also think that either they have a very inflated sense of what we are capable of in terms of the leaps and bounds and difference from draft to draft, um, or like they maybe sense that we had some help because... We, I, don't, I just don't think it would have been possible unless we were like superhuman geniuses to do what we did without the guidance of someone like Carrie. And I think that our editors at Simon & Schuster are perceptive people. And we turned in like three very different drafts of this book in a time frame that uh, we could not have come up with those ideas on our own. <laughs> right. And that went far beyond the edit that the editors at our publisher had returned to us. All right. Read me some line items from this budget. Okay. Um... Squarespace, LOL. Um, (laughs) 
literally the first item. Um, flights to get to the same place um, for writing trips, some therapy, Aubrey, who's our researcher and fact checker, Davis, who did all our interview transcription, Carrie Fry for editing, a car rental to get to a place where we were going to write kind of like more off the grid. Uh, Trader Joe's snacks while writing and working. Um, Staples to print like copies of the book to read on paper. Um, More like Airbnbs or flights to get to the same place. Like, frankly, that's a lot of it. And yeah, and then recurring names as well. Carrie, Aubrey, our researcher, Davis, who does transcription over and over. Do you have like an overall number of what it costs you guys to write a book? Yeah. um, Well, I can tell you that I'm behind in the dock right now. So far, Amina has invested about $27,000 and I have invested about $23,000. So I will either pay her or pick up the tab until we are done with this process and are evened out. And are there still costs accruing now that you guys are about to launch this thing? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Very much so. What are those? We hired uh, an assistant that we share, Ariane Young. She's amazing, and we love her. And she is the assistant of a lot of cool writers also, so that worked out really well for us. And we also hired um, Jackson Musker, who has been doing all of our outreach for podcasts and radio, and it's been great, you know? I'm a firm believer that there are problems that you can uh, pay your way through, and this is what the book advance was for. Monopoly money is for spending on Monopoly games. (laughs) Has money always been easy for you guys? I think um, when I met Anne, I was very, very broke and like underemployed. And I think that part of the charm of that relationship is that in D.C., she was one of the few people who didn't make me feel like shit about it. And so... For the longest time in our friendship, I was the, like, no money, no prospects, nothing going on. Like, everything is a disaster person. Maybe still true. but Right. And that was the fault of the market. I knew from day one. I was like, wow. Like, how has the market undervalued this jewel? Um, Thank you. Buy low, sell high. Buy low, sell high. Important. Important. You know, Um, I have yet to sell. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah, but I think that because of that, I've always, you know, like, I grew up, like, very poor, which meant that we talked about money constantly and that we didn't have it. And so I don't have any qualms about talking about money because, yeah, it's like if you don't have it, you are talking about it all the time. But I think that in my friendship with Anne, you were you were like the first friend that I met who you were very transparent about your money in this like very low key way that made me feel like it was okay to do, you know, like it was like, oh, yeah, like um, here's how much is in my savings account or here is how. <laughs> here's how much my rent costs and here's how I make those decisions. Never in a, you know, like a, it always served the purpose of really like clarifying. I have, I've been on the record for a long time that uh, white people are very weird about their money and white people always have like a secret stash of money that exists. Like there is, I have been amazed to, to like no ends to which like some white people in my life just have this safety net of money that just constantly exists. And Anne was the first person who was very honest about talking about that. It was nothing like extravagant or nuts, you know, but truly, I think you, you were like the first friend that was like, oh, wow, some people have three months of uh, living expenses in their savings account. I didn't know that was possible. And, uh, you know, and so I think that very early on in our friendship, we did start talking about money. And I think that we also understand that um, the power of talking about money. And also, you know, now for me, 
it costs me nothing to tell someone else like what my book advance was or what what I get for these like nebulous weird other podcasts that I make or the thing because you know or maybe it is costing me something at some level that I'm not aware of but I think that for me it's important to tell other people about it because it demystifies a lot of the the power behind it. Yeah, and I think that if you have access to um, financial security, be it like in a family kind of context, um, secret white people money, or if it's because you've reached a level in your career where you're really comfortable, I do think it's an obligation to talk about it a bit more transparently than the social norms would have you. And I don't know. I really like like Ashley Ford said on this very podcast, like, what is the worst that's going to happen? Like the people I really care about being in solidarity with, are they going to be complaining? Like, are they going to be like, is this really going to harm them if I speak out? And the answer is like, no, (laughs) it's not. So what what are the like pie charts of your individual incomes like now? Like how much does the book represent of what you guys make? Now, I know that you guys have different income streams and you do different things. And I assume the podcast is a pretty, I don't know. Actually, I don't actually know the podcast is a chunk of it, but like, what does that breakdown look for you guys now? Well, last year was a weird year because it was like kind of a between book payment slash just a half seas book payment. And then also all the expenses that we just rattled off went out and into the book, not to mention our time. And so I don't know if it's representative. I will say that in general, I am pretty equally spread between the podcast, income from my newsletter, and then money I make writing. And like, you know, the money I make writing category has been 100% the book, you know, in the past year or whatever, but in some years is magazine articles and other things. But yeah, the truth is, I don't know 2019. I haven't done the money pie for 2019. But 2018 was like pretty evenly spread out in a way that like makes me feel very safe and secure. (laughs) Um, that any of these media pockets could collapse and I could be like, I could get by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I agree with you that 2019 was definitely a weird year in terms of just like when the book payments hit, I guess. But I'll say that maybe in the last two years, it is true for me that the bulk of my income has come from speaking and branded, like nebulous branded kind of work. You know, so whether it's like hosting other podcasts or doing ads for things, And all of that is, like, very much tied into the speaking work that I do. But it's never income that when I map out my year, I don't think of that as income that is stable. So, you know, it's like if it comes in, great. If it doesn't come in, I have made other plans for myself. And, um, yeah, and so... What are are the other plans? What do you mean? I constantly have, like, four or five irons in the fire. Like, you know, the working-for-yourself hustle of what is a thing that you can fall back on. And so... Part of wanting to do the book in 2018 and 2019 was that for me, where I was like, oh, this is stable income for the next, you know, if I turn in this book on time, I have four checks that are coming to me in the next two years. And unless publishing collapses tomorrow, which it very much could, that is something that I can count on. So I try to, as much as I can, I try to map out my year that way, where it's like, what is income that I'm guaranteed and everything else is you can't count on it. If it shows up, amazing. If it doesn't show up, that was not the plan we made. And the podcast is a much smaller part of of income, but is a very stable, very good piece of income. The way that I kind of map out my year is, uh, how am I going to pay my rent? How do I pay my bills? How do I pay my health insurance? And how do I support all the people I support in my life? And 
the stable income has to cover all of that and more. And so I have been really lucky in the pandemic in that so much of this other income that I was counting on has completely evaporated overnight, but does not really impact how I live because, uh, again, the understanding that monopoly money is fake. <laughs> how how motivated are each of you by not having to get a job? Like not having to get a uh, job at a company where you get salary and benefits and can't do anything else? I mean, I'm extremely motivated by being professionally accountable only to people I am really in values alignment with. And so, like, right now, that means, like, I am in partnership with Aminatu So, unimpeachable values. Gina Delvec, great values as well. Like, the three of us, I feel really good if I had to just drop out and they had to make every podcast choice. I'd be like, great, great, great. And myself, you know, like, those are really my, like, long-running arrangements. And so I won't say that I am, like, a never-again staff job person, But I do think that I would have to have some knowledge of on like this values level or assurances about the people who I would be working with or for on that staff job. And I realize as I say that, like what a huge privilege it is to be able to just kind of declare that. And and I don't know, like maybe things could um, dramatically change for me financially and I would have to revise that. And so I won't say like never, ever, ever, but I don't really look around and see lots of companies where I'm like super clamoring <laughs> to get in. And I and I think also like uh, have made choices to, you know, do things a smaller or a slower way so that I can have that values assurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel very similarly. I also, um, I struggle to think of an institution that would want me to be a part of it also, I think as part of it, you know, where I'm like, ah, uh, when you're on the outside for as long as I am, I'm like, I don't have a resume. I don't really map out well into an org. And so much of my decision to leave my job at Google behind was that. And I think that when you make that step in a big way, I knew that. So many of these companies have, you know, they have like ladders that they're trying to push you into. And I was like, yeah, I'm out of the ladder game. <laughs> there is just, there is no place that I map into. And yeah, I'm very similarly to Anne. Like I only want to work with people that I am like, creatively and values aligned with. And I think that I have really found that in Anne and Gina. And I have a really good mix of projects that I do with other people and projects that I do alone. And it is a huge privilege, is an intense privilege to be able to to take that risk on your own. And, you know, and every once in a while, I'll look at my bank account or I'll look at this moment of pandemic where more than like 70% of my income evaporated into thin air over a couple of weeks. And, you know, and think like, oh, it would be nice if someone else paid for my health insurance. Like, I'm a cancer survivor who pays over $1,100 a month for health insurance and more money than that for the drugs I have to take. And, you know, there's a part of me that's like, oh, it would be nice to be on that nice group plan. But, um, you know, I that's something that I, I think about a lot, too, about how just the lack of a social safety net is what keeps a lot of very entrepreneurial and enterprising people in these jobs, you know? And so for as much as I say that I have privilege, I, you know, I'm like, my situation is also very tenuous, but that is a decision that I made for myself. It's a decision I'm really uh, happy about. I'm so happy to only be accountable to Anne and Gina and myself. And uh, Kara Swisher always says that, you know, she is trying to get to staff zero And, um, (laughs) 
I always had this like weird dream somewhere in the back of my mind that one day I was going to own this like very big business. And the more I own this small business with Ann and Gina, the happier I am that we made that decision. Like I am not interested in being like a, you know, like here am I, the 1700 people I employ. I was like, that is messy and hard and <laughs> I want no part of it. I, I want to make things with the people that I love and people who, um, whose ideas I like. And, you know, it probably is going to mean that we are, we're never going to be, uh, moguls or this like model of success in the way that like success is celebrated, especially in media. But that is fine with me. You know, I'm like, we can pay our bills. We can go on the vacations we want to go on. We can support the causes that we care about. And I sleep really well at night knowing that, um, you know, that we made those decisions together. So healthy. <laughs> All of that sounds incredible, except for the thing at the end about it not being a model. Cause I think you guys are absolutely a model. I know that to be true. It just doesn't feel that way. And it's fine that it doesn't feel that way. I think that like, you know, part of it and like an undercurrent for me in so much of my work is that I fully recognize that someone who looks like me does not get to have this like very charmed traditional path to just success. And in some ways that was actually very, very freeing that I understood that when I was 22 and I was like, oh yeah, I... These institutions have told me that I um, do not belong here because I did not go to the right schools. I am not white. I am not so many things. And I think that what that did for me early on, instead of crushing my spirit, actually was very liberating. I was like, great. I am not on the hamster wheel. And no Mm -hmm. one is paying attention to my little sandbox. And I can do whatever I want. And what I really like about my work with Anne is that we also have an understanding that, um, you know, we are playing a very long game. We are not interested in, like, burning out in our early 30s. We're not interested in burning out in our... We didn't. Those are long in the past. <laughs> the spoiler, we did not burn out. <laughs> we, we did not burn out. And I don't know. I think so much about the conversations that we have and the work that we have as something that we is, like, very deeply rooted in the future. And mm-hmm. that is also very freeing. You know, because it's not about an idea that, um, you know, what's the hot new thing in media this year? Who's the hot new thing in writing or whatever? I was like, I am trying to make work that I am really happy to talk about when I'm 63 years old. That's the magic number for me. And it feels really good to say, okay, we're going to put our heads down and we're going to work for the future instead of for right now. Last question, then I'll let you guys go. A big part of your business with Gina with the podcast is about the two of you and like who you are and how you see the world. This book is about the two of you and who you are and very intimate details of your friendship and your sort of shared life together. And when I was reading it, I wondered with the commitment to transparency that the two of you have and the degree to which you are sort of out there in your work and yourselves, I wonder what you keep for yourself. Like what's the gap between the Anne and Amina in the book and in real life, Anne and Amina? The choices that we make about what to share on the podcast or the choices that we made about what to share in the book are in service of a specific goal or editorial framework, you know? I mean, like, the idea of 
I feel a level of like, oh God, sitting up at night when I think about all of the personal details that made their way into this book as we tried to really find specific support for some of the things we knew we wanted to write about. Like, I do feel some level of exposure by what we wrote there or about what we wrote in the book. But I ultimately feel good about it because I think it is in service of this like bigger idea that I'm super excited to talk about and that I want to be out in the world. And I don't think it would have been as good if we just interviewed... 20 people about their friendships and put it in. I don't think it would be as intimate or wouldn't land the same way. And similarly on the podcast, I think the details that we both choose to share are in service of a conversation that we want to be having about what's happening in culture or the news or because we want to extend ourselves in order to have a better, more intimate conversation with the person we're interviewing. Like, you know, I think that's a perfectly reasonable goal for sharing some things. And so I don't really feel that there is a difference or a gap in terms of what someone who is a civilian friend of mine who doesn't work with me would say about who I am. And I don't feel that, like, there's nothing that feels disingenuous in this moment about the friendship that Amina and I have privately and and what we are sort of talking about publicly. But I will say that the public portion of it, both in the book and on the podcast, is just not the whole story. And that doesn't mean... I guess I'm I'm grappling with your question about sort of what's different, right? You know, or are they the same? And the answer is they're not the same because one is not a complete picture. But that doesn't mean that, I hope at least, that, that it is not contradicted by what's happening. You know, my personal life does not contradict like the things that we talk about on shows like this or on our own show or in the book. I don't think it does. I don't feel it does. Yeah, I, um, you will be unsurprised to hear that I agree with that. <laughs> what? No. Um, you know, I think it's funny on the podcast. I, um, I never feel exposed on our podcast because I'm like, we're making an editorial product and I hope that anyone who is listening to it understands that for as freewheeling as we are, you know, we're not actually oversharers. Like we are not, we are very careful, selective sharers of things that we you know, we say things that you're not supposed to say sometimes to to provoke a little bit, but mostly because there are things that also don't mean that much to us. Like they're not um, they're not things that are like taboo between us or things that we think like one should not talk about in public. So whether that's money or talking about your menstruation or, you know, I was like, <laughs> that is not a an intimate detail that I am, uh, you know, I feel shy about um, like telling to the world but I feel very differently about this book in that it has a very detailed accounting of our lives you know and even then we have very carefully selected stories and and anecdotes to share and it was easy to share them because there's nothing like painful or weird about them but it's interesting for me it's never the reaction of the the public that I worry about because I'm like I don't know those people and they are not accountable to me and I am not accountable to them Um, But the experience of having close friends and people that know us read this book is like, that's where I'm I'm trying to stay attuned to, you know, of, oh, like, what are you learning for the first time? What feels, you know, true to how you experience me and what is new? And so far, I want to believe just like Anne that, um, you know, there's not really a gap there. Um, sure, there are like stories and things that they didn't know, but there's not really, uh, you know, we are not two completely different people. I also think that, you know, I I love to share certain things about my life because I have found that 
in sharing them, it has opened a door for conversation or for facilitating um, other people talking about something that should be hard but is not. And it's such a gift. People telling you about their lives is a real privilege and honor. You know, like no one owes you to tell you their story. They just, they don't. And I think that, you know, sometimes in the world of people who write or people who make media, there is just this expectation that everything is on the table, especially if you are two women who make media, that we're just supposed to just like share our pain and our, like everything that's going on in our lives. But that's not fair and it's not true. And I think that the larger project of this book is really sharing these stories in service of having an honest dialogue about how other people are doing friendship. The reason I I wrote this book is because I am so deeply curious about how other people are doing friendship. I know how I am doing this friendship and, you know, some of it works, some of it doesn't work. I want to know how other people are doing it. And I hope that that is, um, I hope that that really comes across. I also want to make room for the fact that, like, we could both look back on this moment or this book or this conversation and be like, ha ha, how little we knew about, like, this actual thing that was festering in our friendship or, like, how this thing that, you know, one or both of us didn't think to mention would have these bigger repercussions. I mean, I just want to say that, like, right now it all feels good and tied up in a bow in part because, like, we did a lot of work in writing this book to, like, both feel good and, like, come to a shared understanding. But I, it's not lost on me how much of that happened about things in the past, right? Like, you know, we know a lot about who we are in this moment. We think we think we have like a great relationship and I believe we do. And I also just want to make room for the truth that everyone is always changing and we are both going to keep changing and our friendship is going to change. And we could listen back to this and be like, just laid out laughing about how we are not talking about something that we don't even realize in real time. So anyway, we are emotional dummies is the theme. I hope that we do feel that way, though, because we are going to change. Even the the people that turned in the book, we are different, different people. Women. We are different, different women, women than those women. And writing a memoir is such a weird exercise and always having to reconcile yourself to the version right. of yourself that you wrote about. And, you know, the, we are different people than the people who wrote that book. We are different people than the yep. people who submitted that book. And we will be different people than the people who are, who are like promoting this book. And I, um, that actually makes me feel really good. And it's part of the complication of what friendship is. It is completely normal to have strife in friendship. And it doesn't mean that it's not worth it or that, you're clinging on so tightly to this weird, like, magic that you made once upon a time. I think that, you know, the point of big friendship is that we want to grow together, not um, get stuck together in this beautiful moment. That was an amazing, like, shared monologue to end this podcast. Thank you both for doing this. Thank you for doing this with us, Max. It means a lot. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Julianne Parker. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsor, our longtime sponsor, MailChimp. If you are interested, go to MailChimp.com slash presents. Amina and Anne have curated an incredible set of conversations between authors. And Aaron and I are also doing a little uh, spin-off podcast of Longform. We are talking to all kinds of incredible authors. Shea Serrano, Saeed Jones, Rebecca Traster. 
about their favorite books, the books that changed them in some fundamental way. You can find that podcast at MailChimp.com slash presents as well. So there's a lot there to check out. But before you do, you might remember from this conversation just now, Anne was talking about Carrie Fry, their editor on Big Friendship. Carrie runs this thing called Black Cardigan Edit, and she edits books and long literary projects. Anyway, you remember Anne said that she could leave me a whole voice memo about all the things that Carrie did for them and what a indispensable part of the book process Carrie was. Uh, I asked her to do that. So uh, here's Anne Friedman on the powers of Carrie Fry. We'll see you next week. I knew just from the way Carrie sets up her website that she would be the perfect structural thinker to work with. So here's what I mean by that. Her website has, you know, these very clear lists of options about the ways she can work with you, conceptualizing your proposal, um, doing a full edit. She's very clear about what she means by each of these like tiers of editing services she provides. And just seeing that, I was like, yes, this is the kind of editorial guidance that we really needed, frankly. She has a process that enables you to word vomit all over her about your aspirations for this book. And what she did was she almost interviewed us about the process. She was like, okay, what do you want this book to sound like? What do you want the experience for the reader to be? All these big nebulous things, things like tone that are notoriously hard to pin down. She got us talking about them. She sent us a questionnaire that had us drill down into what books we wanted our book to be in conversation with, where we might see it shelved. And then what she did was at each point of the process, used that interview with us and that document we filled out as kind of a touchstone. And so the brilliance of this cannot be understated. When you are like in the weeds of a project as big as a book, how do you keep in mind these questions of like, are we doing overall over the whole course of this book what we set out to do? And Carrie had this like very systematized way of keeping us on track. So that's one. Second thing is that her editorial bedside manner is incredible. Like, you know, Editors are essentially word doctors, (laughs) prose doctors. And even in our very last drafts, when she had seen this, like, I don't know, half a dozen times, she was still leaving comments about jokes that she found funny or moments that she found poignant, which, you know, I know those were not new to her. I know she had read them multiple times. And she also knew that at that stage in the process, we needed a kind word of encouragement. She also was an important sounding board for us when we couldn't decide how to tackle certain issues. Chapter eight of our book was notoriously problematic, where we kept trying to do different things with it and couldn't exactly decide how to frame the issues in it. And she consistently had good advice for us in the sense that she was not saying, here's what I think you should do with the chapter, but let's talk it through and come to a place where there are two options for you to try. That was immensely helpful. And, you know, I can't believe I didn't say this at the outset, but the first time we met up with Carrie, she brought us each a copy of Gloria Naylor's novel Mama Day, which is a great book. Um, That is true. But I was just so touched by this idea that, like, we are entering into this creative and intellectual collaboration with her and she wanted to give us this little gift um, that was so not literally tied to the project we were doing, but in its use of voice and multiple perspectives was obviously so relevant. Anyway, this has been an advertisement for Black Cardigan Edit, and I am not sorry. 
Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. 